We have been working through our statement of faith. Uh, we will uh, finish this in a couple of weeks, uh, the first half of our statement of faith, and then uh, pick it up in the spring and do the second half of then. If you uh, don't have a statement of faith, uh, if you do, we're on page 27, I think. Twenty-seven and twenty-eight, and there are, are um, just copies of the first half of our statement of faith here. That's on page four. Tonight we're looking at the incarnation, and so as we begin, I want to pray. Well, actually, I'm going to ask uh, since uh, Steve is wearing a Geneva sweatshirt, that means he's close to God. And so, <laughs> so we're going to ask you to pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to start by looking at sentence one of uh, our confession in this section on the incarnation. It says, In the fullness of time, God the Father sent his eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus the Christ. The first part of that is almost a, a quote from uh, Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does it mean, fullness of time? <laughs> Actually, that's excellent. Uh, and I'm a little surprised that it came from you, Ed. Uh, uh, it, you're right. It means the idea of completeness, of, of fullness. It's self-defining. When it was, as Ed says, ready, the time was complete. It was, according to God, the ideal moment in History. Now, we can look at God's providence at what was going on in the world, and we can see some of it. Uh, the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the, the known world, making Greek the universal language. People had their own language in their own countries, but pretty much everyone could understand, read, or speak Greek. Uh, and so the gospel, by the time of Christ, was able to go into all the world uh, and cross borders and cultures with some ease. In the second century BC, the Roman Empire conquers the Greeks and they provide uh, Pax Romana, uh, which means international peace or the peace of Rome is what that means. But it was a, a, a time where people could travel with some ease. There were roads that Rome built, there was some protection. It was still a dangerous world, but uh, it provided. A, a, a way for missionaries to go, for Paul to travel throughout the world. And so just God, by his providence, provided a time when uh, Greek was the language and there was international travel. The fullness of time, I think, in the end, I, I, I'm not sure it just means that, just the providential kind of uh, 
temporal realities, but for whatever reason, it was the time that God had set in eternity past when Jesus would be born, he would live, and he would die. It was the fullness of time, the perfect time. Uh, Though if uh, you were a Jew, it may not have felt that way. Um, It had been 2,000 years since God promised Abraham uh, the gospel truth. And so there were uh, centuries of waiting. And I'm sure uh, there were times when the faithful had asked, How long, O Lord? Uh, But we're in the same place, aren't we? It's been 2,000 years since Christ has been here. And sometimes we have to ask, how long? How bad do things have to get before Christ returns and makes all things right? But God has set a time when Christ will return and he will make all things right. And he will perfect those who belong to him. Uh, in Second Peter, the world mocks the warning of God's coming judgment. And they foolishly ask, where is this coming judgment that you speak about? And what does Peter say? With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when they least expect it, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done uh, will be exposed. God will keep his promise in the fullness of time. So God sent his son in the fullness of time. Jesus is both God and man. Uh, The biblical teaching is that he is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so Forever. Uh, The second person of the triune God is a divine person with a divine nature who added to himself a human nature. Like perhaps the Trinity, the incarnation is a difficult doctrine to comprehend. Really, our finite minds can't fully grasp it, can we? Too often, uh, what people have done is tried to make sense of the incarnation so that it fits our finite mind, but inevitably those attempts would distort the truth and so that the truth is no longer the gospel truth but some heretical uh, point of view. Some have argued that Jesus became the Son of God, meaning he was not eternally the Son of God. And so uh, by that, they deny the the divine in Christ. They would say that Jesus was just a man who became the Christ at his baptism and was adopted by the Father after his 
death. Uh, it's called adoptionism, and it was condemned uh, in the, at the end of the first century and then again at the end of the second century. Yet, I've heard some form of this taught in churches today. Others say Jesus was fully God, but only appeared to be a man. And so they deny Jesus' humanity. Uh, the logic would be God cannot suffer. Uh, so if Jesus is God, then his suffering really could not be real. Uh, docetism in the first century. Uh, Jesus was divine, but appeared to be a human. Jesus' humanity was an illusion, and therefore unimportant, when really his humanity is the very essence of the gospel. Today, it's the view of Christian scientists. Still others uh, say that Jesus was the highest created being, but not God himself. He was something other than God, but more than just a man. Uh, Arius, uh, in the third century, argued that, uh, that God created Jesus, and it was Jesus who then created everything else. Arianism was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., uh, which produced the Nicene Creed, which says, Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. Today, uh, Sure, the teaching of Arius would, could be seen, though they wouldn't know that's where it's from, in Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians. They believe that Jesus is not God, but a created being. The, what the incarnation means is that Jesus is one person with two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature. The person of Jesus, therefore, is fully God and fully man. The second person of the triune God is a divine person with a divine nature who added to himself a human nature. Look at part two of sentence two. Taking on, uh, on himself a fully human nature with all the attributes and frailties, yet without sin. The human nature of Jesus is a physical body that got hungry, that got tired. It obviously could feel pain and experience death. The incarnation is a body, a soul, as well as human emotions and a human will. Everything we are. Jesus became just like us, in his human nature. He came to be us, to submit to the Father in everything so that he could completely redeem us. The characteristics that we have or the attributes that we have, he must have or he could not redeem them. We are body, soul, emotions, and will, so Jesus took to himself all of that. Sentence three, in this union, 
Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one person of the divine Son without confusion, mixture, or change. That last part is a play off the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 A.D., uh, the Council of Chalcedon condemned uh, monophysites that, see, that said Jesus' humanity uh, was swallowed up by his divinity. They would have said that Jesus was one person with only one nature. It was a human body and a divine nature. The resulting Chalcedon Creed has guided the church, uh, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, for over 1,500 years now. And it says this, Jesus is, one of, is of one substance with the Father in his divinity. And at the same time, one substance with us in his humanity. Like us in all respects, apart from sin. And the two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus isn't some demigod like Hercules who's part God and part human. Uh, he is one person with two natures. And these two natures uh, coexisting in the one person is called the hypostatic union. Uh, I don't even know what that means, but that's just what they call it. Uh, but in this union of one divine person with two natures, the eternal logos of the Godhead has priority since he pre-existed his incarnation. The human nature has no personality apart from the pre-existing person of the second uh, member of the Godhead. The human nature exists only in union with the divine person. Jesus was fully human, yet at the same time, he was still fully God, exercising all authority and power in the heavenlies. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created by and through Christ, and that in him, all things hold together. Jesus was here in the flesh, limited in his human nature, yet in his divine person and nature at the same time sustaining the whole of creation. God cannot cease to be God. He cannot diminish in any way. And God is all wisdom, power, and authority. God's attributes do not ebb and flow like personality qualities. They are essential to his being. They are what he is. But Jesus, in his human nature, veiled those attributes. He gave up the prerogatives that were his as God. Why? To be us. To be our Messiah. 
to be a man and as a man fulfill the law for us and thereby save us from the curse of the law. Don't think of uh, the incarnation as God minus some attributes. But it's God with all of his attributes plus a human nature. There was a teaching uh, in the 19th century uh, called the Kenosis Theory that said uh, that uh, God, looking at Philippians 2, God emptied himself, that he empties himself of his godness and he becomes a man. And then at his ascension, he stops being a man and becomes God again. And that's to misunderstand the incarnation altogether. God never ceases to be. Yet the God who never changes. This is, this, is, this is an amazing statement. God never changes. He's immutable. Yet to save us, he does take something additional to himself. Our humanity. Why did Jesus have to be fully human? The historical context is the fall of man. We needed redemption. We needed a savior. We needed one like us to save us, to fulfill uh, the covenant of creation. God created us to have relationship with himself. He uh, uh, created man, placed him in the garden, and, and he's placed man in the garden in what's called the, the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. And in that covenant of Creation, God says, obey me and live, disobey me and die. It's that simple. In this covenant of creation, God promised life to Adam and his posterity upon the condition of perfect personal obedience. And God had given Adam two commands. One positive and one negative. The positive is found in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. And take dominion over the earth. The garden was the epicenter of the kingdom of God on earth. Which man was to expand to cover the whole earth. Outside the garden, what is there? A wilderness that needs to be subdued. And so Adam was to function as a type of king. To rule and have dominion over the earth under the authority of God. And his job was to make sure that the creation had covenantal fidelity to its creator God. The garden functioned as a type of temple. It was the tent of meeting of sorts. It was the place of God dwelling with man. It was a sacred place. Ezekiel 28 refers to as the holy mountain of God, the garden of God, a sanctuary. 
And in Genesis 2.15, man is placed in the garden to cultivate and to keep it. What's interesting about that, those, those two verbs, cultivate and keep, when they're used together elsewhere in the Old Testament, they're associated with the duties of Israel's priests, and they're translated to serve and to guard. Adam, as a type of king, was also a type of priest called by God to serve and guard the garden temple of God and expand it so that it covered the whole earth. That was the positive command. The negative command is the one we all think of. Genesis 2, uh, verses 16 and 17. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had relative freedom to do what they wanted in the, in, in the garden. But one tree they weren't allowed to eat from. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was meant to be an instrumental means to test Adam himself. To see if he would have covenantal fidelity to his creator God. It was to test Adam's kingly, priestly ability. Now, Adam already knew what was good and what was evil. It's not as though he didn't know. It's good to obey God. That's a given. And it's bad not to obey God. What the tree was, was Adam was to experience what it means to be good or to be bad. He was going to learn the difference between good and bad and the consequences that they bring. Think of it when you're with your teenager. You tell them what uh, you think is best and wise. They're either going to say... Yes, mom and dad are older than I am. They know what's better. They love me and they love God. And so I will trust what they say. But too often, they go the opposite way, don't they? And you know that's true because that's what you did. At least some of the time. Did you learn what was good and bad and the consequences of it? Absolutely. There are things in life that you think, now, I wish I had listened to Dad. You learned good and bad. And so Adam was tested. He was going to learn that following God is better than disobeying God. He was called to rule under God, not be God himself. The tree was not so much cognitive but experiential to demonstrate in Adam's life obedience or disobedience. Adam was to learn to distinguish good and evil in root to, and this is your big word for tonight, perspicuity was last time, 
uh, on his route to eschatological glory. Yeah, that's it. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, eschatology. Typically, uh, in the church, eschatology means uh, end-time events. And so it's relegated to looking at the book of Daniel and Revelation and the events that are supposed to happen right before Jesus comes. But that's really a limited understanding of eschatology. What eschatology really means is ultimate reality, the way things are supposed to be. When Christ returns, the eschaton begins in its fullness. It's begun in us already. Glory has begun in us already. But when he returns, the fullness of the eschaton comes. And then everything will be exactly the way it's supposed to be. And we will respond to life and to God in all the ways that we should. When God created the world, he had a purpose for it. It was going somewhere. And that somewhere was eschatological glory. A confirmation in righteousness. The goal for the creation right from the beginning was eschatological life. Permanent, unchanging communion with God. The tree of knowledge tested the fidelity of Adam, and Adam failed. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Christ, was victorious. The first Adam was to learn to distinguish good and evil en route to eschatological glory, the same as for Christ as second Adam. Listen to what Hebrews 5 says. Although a son, Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal life. That's the same thing as eschatological glory. Being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? He's a priest. And a what? King. King of Salem, priest of God. Without beginning and without end. We don't know anything else about him. Jesus was sinless his entire life. But he had to be made perfect by testing, by temptation. He had to be tested and remain faithful to God. Only then was he qualified as the second Adam to be a a priest and king on behalf of God's people. He had to learn obedience. He had to demonstrate covenantal fidelity where the first Adam failed. In the garden, Adam sinned, 
and all of humanity was exiled from the garden paradise of God. In Adam, we all fell. We all became sinners. We are now covenant breakers and rebels against God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we are now by nature children of wrath. We're facing God's judgment for sin for the broken covenant. In our natural state, before we are regenerated, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Why? Because Adam was our covenant representative. He represented us before God in the covenant of creation. And so when Adam fell, we all fell. We sin because we are already sinners. That's how we're born. 1 Corinthians 5.22, in Adam all die. So also in Christ all will be made alive. We are either in Adam by nature and therefore children of wrath condemned before God or by faith we are united to Christ, the God in flesh who is the second Adam in whom we have life. The covenant of creation was made with man. So it had to be a man who fulfilled the stipulations of that covenant. Look at uh, part one of sentence two. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, as the son of Mary, is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is a new humanity, one born without a fallen sinful nature. And as our human representative, he fulfills the stipulations of the covenant of creation in what is called his active and passive obedience. In the covenant of creation, God said, obey me and live. That's Jesus' active obedience. He obeyed the Father in everything and therefore fulfilled all righteousness. But the covenant of creation also says, disobey me and die. And that's Jesus' passive obedience. He took our death upon himself and he died in our place and so in him God gives us his righteousness and credits his death to us in Galatians 2 verses 19 and 20 for through the law I die to the law so that I might live to God I have been crucified with Christ in faith We are united to Christ so that his death for sin is our death for sin. So that when he died, we actually died with him. That's not just some metaphor. That's not, hey, let's pretend as though you were dying too. Union with Christ, we were there with him by faith dying. The law put us to death. The law did what it was supposed to do. It killed us. But death couldn't keep a grip on Jesus. 
because he had no sin of his own. And so when he was raised, we were raised with him. And now we have nothing to fear. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation of God has been poured out on Christ. And so today, a person is either in Adam or in Christ. One or the other is our covenant head before God. Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, Many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, many are made righteous. Christ, as the covenant representative of the covenant of grace, fulfills both the positive and negative of the covenant of creation. Does that make sense? The covenant of creation, the covenant of the Garden of Eden doesn't go away. Once God makes a covenant, it's there forever. It doesn't disappear. It gets fulfilled for us. And then it's given to us. And that's the grace. We are saved by obedience and good works. Just not our own. Jesus merited for us in his life and death. Access to the tree of life in the garden paradise of God. And he gives it to whoever he wishes. Revelation 2.7. Adam was to perform perfect personal obedience and he failed. Jesus did perform perfect personal obedience and merited for us eternal life, his posterity by faith. The covenant of creation was with man and where the first Adam failed, Jesus, our second Adam, was obedient. Jesus was fully man because it was a man who was to be the federal head, the covenantal representative who had to fulfill the covenant of creation. But Jesus was also fully God, who in his death not only could die, but take upon himself the eternity of hell for millions. A good man can only die for himself. But a person who is fully man can die. And if he's fully God, his death is sufficient to cover the sins of all of his people. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. There was a a second tree mentioned in the garden the tree of life that was to be the confirmation and righteousness to those who believed. The two trees represented two possibilities, disobedience and obedience, resulting in death or life. Humanity sinned and was exiled from the garden temple of God. And in Genesis 3.24, it says, God drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam was to guard the garden and the tree of life. 
But he sinned and was exiled. And now the tree of life is guarded by the flaming sword of God's judgment. To access the tree of life. To enter into eternal life. One must face the flaming sword of God's judgment. One who is worthy. Jesus is that one. Sentence six. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is fully God and fully man, able to be our all-sufficient Savior and only mediator between God and man. There are some who would say that the incarnation is not about sin but rather to show uh, the greatest potential of humanity. This is, this is what it likes if we would just give up sinning. And Jesus is a wonderful example for us, isn't he? Others acknowledge sin, but don't like a God who judges sin. That doesn't sound very loving. And so they argue that God did not pour out his wrath on Jesus for our sin, but rather Jesus died to show us how serious sin is. In both cases, the emphasis of the incarnation is Jesus' ethical teaching or his example, which I said are important and good. But we cannot understand the incarnation. We cannot understand the person of Christ apart from his work. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus as a mediator reconciles us to God. Which says there's something that's in between us. There's something that keeps us apart. He is our covenant representative who brings rebels, covenant breakers, back to God. He restores a right relationship. Jesus said in John 16, I came that you might have peace. That's not some general idea of bliss. Though joy is a fruit of the Spirit but to make peace between God and man. We are at enmity with God in in our natural state. And through Jesus, we have been brought near. We have been given peace. We have been made right. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 10 of that chapter, For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more than being reconciled, we are saved by his life. Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom. To seek and to save the lost. He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus' teaching and his example are important. But his teaching and his example cannot reconcile us to God. They do not deal with the sin issue in our heart. 
Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself in the body of his flesh. His words and example do not restore our relationship to God. We need his death and his resurrection. We need more. We need his atonement. The incarnation really was just a preparation for him to die. He came in order to die for you and for me. He died for sin, and he fulfilled all righteousness for us. Think about John uh, 1, and we'll finish up with this. This is the very beginning of John. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14 of that same chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son of God became flesh, and John says we beheld his glory. Thousands of people saw his miracles. Thousands of people heard his teaching. But only a small percentage saw his glory. Many today see Jesus as a good man, maybe even a prophet, but they do not see his glory. To see the glory of the Son of God incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ takes faith. It's spiritually discerned. John 3, uh, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the, the kingdom of God. That's, there's a play on words there. Born again can also be translated born from above. Unless one is spiritually born, born again, born from above, then we cannot see, understand the kingdom of God. God must regenerate us before we see the truth of the gospel, the glory of Christ in flesh in the person of Jesus. Think again uh, back to Genesis 1. Adam is a type of priest and king who is, take, who is uh, entrusted to take the kingdom of God, and take it over all the earth. That's what the second Adam is going to do, isn't he? He's going to return and he's going to reform not just the earth, but the whole of creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make all things right. Everything is going to obey God then. And the, and the wonderful thing now is uh, each, uh, this is something I, I talk about in uh, membership class, each church, each local church is an embassy of that kingdom. Instead of just one garden that's supposed to spread out across all the world, God has planted embassies throughout the world. And what are they supposed to do? Spread. Spread the glory of the kingdom. Now, we're not going to be fully successful 
the, the, the final success of the kingdom awaits the return of Christ. But uh, we who have seen his glory, shouldn't we be motivated to live a life of gospel proclamation and, and the words that we say and how we live and how we love one another and our neighbors? Will you pray with me? Father, the incarnation is a, a difficult truth to understand. I ask that uh, there was some clarity uh, that uh, what each person perhaps needed to hear tonight, to be encouraged in their walk with you, that, that you would impress that upon them, that you would do a work in each of us that, that uh, only your spirit can do, that can convince us of the truth of your word, of the glory of the Christ. Let us see it afresh today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.